Nobody should walk into a congressional office without their two-minute elevator speech. This is the problem. This is what we found out. This is how it impacts people. This is what we can do to make a difference. On episode four of the Prevention Matters podcast, I chat with Susan Poland of the American Public Health Association to learn about her background in public policy, how to best show the benefits of prevention work, what the American Public Health Association is up to this year, and who will win the World Series. So join us on this episode of the Prevention Matters podcast. The National Prevention Science Coalition is the premier professional association dedicated to translating scientific knowledge into effective and sustainable programs and policies to enhance the well-being of children, families, and communities. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. And now the host of the Prevention Matters podcast. Dr. Robert Lachos. Dr. Susan Poland is Associate Executive Director for Public Affairs and Advocacy with the American Public Health Association. She is responsible for planning and directing APHA's legislative, regulatory, and legal activities and communicating those initiatives and association news to members and to the public. Dr. Poland earned her doctorate in social ecology from the University of California, Irvine. Welcome to the Prevention Matters podcast, Dr. Poland. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So why don't you first tell us a little bit about your background and experience in public health and prevention? Why a career in public health and policy? I came to a career in public health and policy somewhat serendipitously. When I was in graduate school, I realized I was much more interested in looking at community-based issues rather than individual issues. As many people, I started college the gay was going to be a doctor and have moved relatively far away from that. But when I was in graduate school, my dissertation focused on uh, juvenile justice and diversion programs for juvenile justice and trying to keep kids out of the penal system and really thinking about those issues from a holistic perspective. And it was only much later that I realized, in fact, what I was doing was public health. So when I came to the Hill, I started working on health issues and healthcare issues, but got my position because I had this more holistic background and have slowly moved further upstream into public health and health issues. It's what interests me. It's what I think really is what's necessary if we're going to make a difference in the health of people and communities. And it just is the right fit. So you've had a long career in in public health and uh, applied research and federal policy. Where does prevention research fit into current U.S. policy? It's a very interesting question because where it fits in is not necessarily um, what's in truth happening. And so the reality of prevention research is that we can look at at a big picture and figure out what's going on. It's much harder to to provide a clear pathway for policymakers because often what we're talking about are things that cross-cut sectors or that are hard to to, um, actually come up with a dollar figure that's attached to any intervention because the implications of the work we're doing now are only seen in years later. And so really part of our challenge is to focus on 
how to make what we're doing in prevention research tangible for people so that they understand the short and long-term implications. There's lots of opportunities. We need to take better advantage of those opportunities that do exist. So how can uh, someone like myself who does research, let's say on teen pregnancy prevention or um, restorative justice programs in schools, or maybe even um, homeless prevention, how can researchers like myself best influence federal policy? So there are a couple of things that I think are really important. One is you need to begin to make and establish relationships with your federal policymakers. And often that means talking to the staff. You are the frontline um, public health and prevention people who understand what's going on and what the implications are. Part of our problem in, in this world of public health and prevention is that we think it's really important to lead with the numbers. And the truth is, as important as we know data are, it's still really important to make it tangible and relatable to people. So if you are able to establish those relationships with your policymakers and talk about the stories you know that are pieces of your research and include the numbers, that's a really important, I think, transition that we need to make, which is um, which is uh, making it more personal and, and backing it up with the numbers rather than leading with the numbers. We know we're doing the right thing, but not everybody else is coming at it from the same perspective. Has there been an example in, in your career that you can think of where you've done that successfully? Oh, gosh. Um, let me go back to one of the earlier pieces, and, and it's and only because it's something that everybody knows about, and that is the tobacco issue. And so we know that the best way to prevent kids from from taking up tobacco is to increase taxes. But when you walk into a congressional office and say, we want you to increase taxes, that's not always a great lead off argument because there's a lot of people who are going to oppose, be opposed to that. But if you talk about um, individual kids or individual communities where you've, see, where you've seen the change happen, where you, where you can um, talk about how somebody who started to take up tobacco, but then as it became more expensive before they, before it became a lifelong addiction, then um, it really does help people to understand that you can put a stop to it at a certain point with the right intervention. And so many, many years ago when the um, issue of tobacco and FDA regulation first came up, I did that. And then in the 10 to 12 years that followed before we actually got that bill passed, that was actually one of the most powerful, uh, powerful ways to talk about it, which is lead with the kids, lead with the impact on kids, not just individual kids, but what we know the impact would be for the long term, and then follow up with the numbers. This is how you do it. This is what we see the difference can be in those communities where it's happened. And this is the benefit to, uh, to government, both state and federal government in the short and long term. Well, we've seen a lot of success, particularly in the area of tobacco control. You know, I've done that work since you know, 1998 here in California and California's tobacco control project with trying to reduce youth access to tobacco, um, trying to counter pro tobacco influences, reduce environmental tobacco smoke is almost seen as a model for for how to go about doing that. Why hasn't that model been successful, let's say, in gun violence or obesity or even um, perhaps um, drug use? 
Um, California has been a role model in many of these issues. So kudos to you for your work in that area over the long haul. Um, I'm going to pull those issues apart a little bit. Gun violence is a much harder issue. And I, I will honestly say I don't always understand why why we're not able to do that. But I, but I think that the most, the simplest answer is that the NRA has been much more effective than the tobacco industry was in creating champions. It was very easy to be able to make the tobacco industry into, um, into, the, into the bad guys. But what we have with the NRA is this reliance on the second amendment that people have been able to apply and and hold on to, and their members are very very loyal. You didn't have that same kind of of uh, loyal constituency with the tobacco with the tobacco issue. You didn't have people coming in and saying we have a a constitutionally given right to to use tobacco, but but the NRA and and its members and its partners have been much more effective and at using that constitutional right. It's a, an American freedom that people have been able to exploit. And members of Congress have become very afraid of those people who are single to, or single issue voters who vote just on gun rights. We didn't have that same kind of thing with tobacco. Um, obesity is also a little bit more difficult because it's such a diverse set of issues that we need to tackle. It's not just food. It's not just physical activity. It is um, some of the upstream issues. Do commun our communities healthier and safer? I think that nobody would say, yeah, I'm all for making sure that, that there's um, kids are obese, but, but the solutions are so much more complex. It's not a single issue like you have with those other two. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot what the third issue was that you raised in relationship to why we're not able to be as successful. Well, I was thinking about you know, uh, you know, drug use. Right. Um, so, you know, we we have a situation, at least in, in my view of doing drug prevention research for the last 20 years, is that, you know, drug use, particularly among young people, adolescents and young adults, has continued to increase despite the United States doing a lot of work and putting a lot of money behind drug interdiction and drug prevention. And if we look at the kind of field of drug prevention from a public health perspective, we know some things about effective drug prevention, but still we see those um, approaches that we know that are not effective continue to be used and sponsored by federal yeah. policy. So I'm just curious um, why that continues to happen, why policymakers may continue to support approaches that we know um, are a waste of time and money. I'm not sure if this is one of the things you're talking about, but when I was on the Hill, one of the programs that I looked into in some depth was the D.A.R.E. program. One of the things that we found is it's great for a year or two, but um, after that, it's not necessarily as effective in making sure that kids don't take up um, drug use or don't get involved in drugs. But what you also have is a very close relationship with the DARE program and and the police. And so there was a, there was and continues to be a very strong advocate for some of these more old style, not necessarily effective, but feel good programs that people think will make a difference. Oftentimes, public health and prevention 
takes a back seat to treatment and clinical care. And, and why do you think that occurs? Why does public health and prevention continue to take a back seat to, let's say, health care or clinical care? There are a variety of reasons. And I think that there's the kind of policy perspective here. And that is when you're talking about a prevention intervention, you're talking about doing something now and not seeing the benefits for five or 10 or 15 years for a lot of things. We're not seeing really tangible benefits in terms of a budget. And that's problematic because um, with a healthcare intervention, you can see much more quickly how something will be, how the, the difference in something will make. You give them a treatment, they get better. Um, but if you, if you have a community-based treatment, like creating um, safe places for people to play and walk and assuring that they have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, that we're not going to see the benefits of that in, in a, within a budget cycle. So that's really problematic from that perspective. I also think that we have to deal with this concern of, of which, isn't, which isn't right and isn't fair, but has been, I think, politicized to some degree of being part of what's called the, you know, the nanny state, that we are that we're trying to put um, regulations and restrictions on individual behavior and not people not recognizing that what we're talking about is a community-based perspective to try and give the opportunity for health to make the right choice the easy choice. And so it's, it's hard to connect the intervention to the cost savings, and it's hard to have people understand that what we're trying to do is make them make them um, offer them the opportunity for health in a way that is not imposing restrictions on their behavior. So what are the things that prevention folks get wrong when they're trying to influence policy or policymakers? I think one of the big things is that someone will come into a policymaker's office with a 15 to 20 page research paper that is that is detailed and well documented in terms of what the problem is and and well researched in terms of what the solution is. But there are several issues. One is when you're walking into a policymaker's office, often you are dealing with somebody who is relatively young, not at all skilled in the issue that you're talking about, and doesn't have the time to read a dense document like that. And so one of the mistakes that we often make in, in prevention and public health and research is that we offer information that is just not, it's not understandable to somebody. So what we need to do is we need to break it down in very simple, in very simple um, talking points. Nobody should walk into a congressional office without their two-minute elevator speech. This is the problem. This is what we found out. This is how it impacts people. This is what we can do to make a difference. And if you could, as I said, spice it up with a little bit of the individual story that someone could walk out and remember that takes them through all of those pieces, that is, the, that is the best way to actually be able to influence policy. I worked for a couple of different senators who were smart, brilliant, technical thinkers who would walk out of a room and remember the story. And that's what they used to convince their fellow legislators. I was responsible for talking to staff about trying about some of the data, but they were responsible for lobbying their members, their, their colleagues to 
make a difference in policy. So we have to be able to really balance that um, in a way that I don't think we're always as successful as we could be or should be. Is it a problem that our federal policy makers are using an anecdote or several anecdotes rather than, you know, more generalized evidence to make these um, decisions about policy? I don't think that they're making the decisions about policy. It is how they are um, applying it to their to their life and to their and using it to help in, um, involve their colleagues. It is our responsibility to give them the stories that that lead them to the right solutions. But it is not their responsibility to remember our data. Um, so let's go ahead and get into the lightning round. We're going to ask you uh, a number of questions and see how many we can get through in, um, in about three minutes. And so these will be uh, questions that are a little bit more lighthearted. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Coffee or tea? Tea. Where would you rather retire? Normal Illinois or Newport Beach, California? Okay. Interestingly enough, I've lived near normal and I've lived in Newport Beach. And so it's Newport Beach, hands down. What was the last song you listened to on your iPhone? Um, it was a song by Michael Franti and the Spearheads, and I cannot remember its name. Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, or Pfizer? Pfizer, baby, all done. <laughs> Who's going to win the 2021 World Series? Chicago Cubs. If I asked your son what you do for a living, what would he say? He would say that I work in public health and try to make people healthier. What chore or job needs to be done in your home right now? Laundry. Well, that's the end of the, the lightning round. Um, what's new at the APHA in terms of translating public health into federal policy? So APHA has really been focusing on trying to make public health understandable to the public, to policymakers, to our, even to our own members. Because if you know APHA, you know that we have representation across the public health sector, which means that we have everything from podiatrists to pharmacists to community health workers and um, people who are researchers and people who are in the field and people who work in normal Illinois and people who work in New Delhi in India. And so we have, we have, we run the whole gamut. And so it's, it's also, it's trying to translate public health to the outside world, but also make people within APHA understand that climate change is a public health issue, which is much easier now than it was when we first started that about 12 years ago, or understand that if we're talking about funding for public health at the national level, it will have a positive impact for them at the state and local level, that what we're doing at the national level much of that money is designed to go out to the local level. And so we're using social media, we're using webinars. We have, um, in the last three years, created what we call our Policy Action Institute, which is, this year was an all virtual meeting, but it's really this opportunity for, for public health and our partners to look at issues that um, in policy and understand all of the different implications to understand what works and what doesn't. So we've heard from, we've heard from senators and members of the administration, and we've heard from um, mayors and governors on all of the public health issues. And people walk away with a much broader understanding of why policy is important to public health. 
Well, Dr. Susan Poland, thank you so much for joining us on the Prevention Matters podcast. Thank you. The Prevention Matters podcast is the official podcast of the National Prevention Science Coalition. To find out more about the National Prevention Science Coalition or to become a member, please visit www.npscoalition.org. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please click on the subscribe button.